In a minute, we're going to make our way to um, Isaiah 53, so I'd love for you to join me there. Actually, we'll start in Isaiah 52. Glad you're here today. Glad we get to study the Bible together and uh, that we can dive into one of the richest parts of Scripture. Love this text. You may remember the story about a man from Ethiopia. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was the treasurer from Ethiopia. This on is his, on his way home, riding on the chariot. He, he had one of the scrolls from the Old Testament uh, open, and he was reading. He was confused. And there was this man, a man of God, a Christian named Philip, God sent to him. It's just interesting how this, how the story's told, you know? He, um, the, the, the eunuch, the treasurer, is riding down the road in the chariot, coming home from Jerusalem. He's reading the prophet Isaiah, it says. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And Philip ran up to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the answer to that was, how can I, unless someone guides me? So he's reading from the Old Testament, reading from the book of Isaiah. How can I understand unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up in the chariot and sit with him, and the passage where he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? So the scroll that he has opened is the scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading right there from chapter 53, which portion of which we read a few minutes ago. The eunuch said to Philip, he said, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And it's interesting, the question that he asked there has befuddled scholars for, for years in some ways. There's still many people who can't answer the question about what in the world is Isaiah talking about? Isaiah 53, it doesn't make any sense. And from one perspective, it doesn't. Uh, if you're reading through the book of Isaiah, by the way, members of Many members of our congregation reading through the Bible chronologically, and yesterday we got to Isaiah 50, 51, 52, and 53, I think it was, uh, in, in our reading. And so if you're, if you're doing that reading with us, you, you read, you know, you've been reading through Isaiah, and you come to chapter 50, and 51, and 52, and 53, and, and maybe you've got a, a little bit more of an informed reading than some folks because you've read the New Testament, you know, but... But if you're just reading along and, and it comes to this section and, and it starts talking about this suffering servant who's being crushed for our iniquities and so on, it's kind of confusing. You can imagine maybe what it would have been like for this treasurer who's, who's somewhat familiar with the Jewish faith, was, was someone who was a believer in God, but he comes to this part of the text and he's confused. He says, who in the world is this talking about? Is, is, is the prophet talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? And, and then this verse, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, all right, understand what he's saying here. This is Acts 8, verse 35, beginning with this scripture, beginning with Isaiah 53, which is what we're going to study today, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And the question is answered. I want us to go back to Isaiah 53. We'll spend the rest of our time, for the most part, well, we'll come back to New Testament near the end, but I want to spend most of our time in Isaiah 52 and, and 53 because I want you to see as much as we can in the limited time that we've got in a, in a, in a worship assembly like this, but 
I want, I want to try for you and me to grasp the depth of what Isaiah is talking about here. This is the gospel. I mean, this is why we're here, as I said at the beginning. I mean, this is it. This Isaiah 53 is the gospel of Christ. This is where we learn about Jesus. We, the, the words that Isaiah uses are so clear and so persuasive and so haunting and so frightening and convicting. I mean, this is a beautiful text, and it's talking to us about Jesus. Look at, our, look at our text, all right? Isaiah 52, actually, in the last part of Isaiah 52, near the end. Uh, this is actually a song. This is the fourth of what, what are called the servant songs. This is the last one. And, and so Isaiah's already been doing this. He's been talking about these songs, but he comes to the last, the last one, like the culmination of these songs. And at the end of chapter 52 is the first stanza. It's a five stanza song. Each one has three verses. And so if you start in Isaiah 52, 13 and go through verse 15, that's stanza number one. And then in chapter 53, you've got the last four stanzas, each comprising three verses. So 15 verses, three verses each, five stanzas. And the first stanza is found in 52. I want to read it. Last three verses of the chapter. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Here's why this is a little bit confusing. We'll pause. I'm going to read through this ultimately, but I want, I want to pause and I want to point out a couple of things to you. Number one, you start this song and it starts on this upbeat, I mean this high note here, this, this uh, beautiful thing, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, he shall be exalted. And if you're reading Isaiah, that's going to make you think of Isaiah 6 where Isaiah sees this manifestation of God. He's transported to the dwelling place of God and he sees that high and lifted up being. He sees Yahweh God on the throne and the seraphim, the, the angels surrounding him, covering their faces, covering their bodies and flying around the throne crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, right? Woe is me, Isaiah says. That's back in Isaiah 6. So Isaiah, this, this fourth song starts with this high and lifted up being. And so we know we're talking about someone special in the context of Isaiah and the Old Testament. We think we're probably talking about this messianic figure, this Christ, this anointed one, right? High and lifted up. We're talking about God. Look at the end of the song, verse 12 of chapter 53. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Notice the song ends on the same note on which it started. In Isaiah 52, 13, he's high and lifted up. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, he's dividing the spoil with the strong. He's won the victory, right? He's high and lifted up, first verse. He's dividing the spoil with a strong last verse. But what is so confusing to people, and it still confuses people today, is everything in between. Nobody has a problem if you believe in God. Nobody has a problem with God as king reigning. In fact, when Jesus came, they, in some ways, they were looking for Messiah. You know, they were looking for the anointed one, the king to come. They were looking for this They'd been reading about the Old Testament. They'd been reading about the king coming, the Messiah coming, and he's, 
He's going to be, you know, riding this white horse, the stallion. He's going to be high and lifted up. He's going to win the victory. He's going to be the king of kings. He's going to lead us in this, in this great rebellion. We're going to be this great nation on earth again. And so they had this idea of a king. He is going to be beautiful and king-like and exalted. And he's going to win the victory. And we will fall at his feet in worship. Nobody has a problem with that kind of image of God, right? Lots of folks have a problem with the image of God that's pictured in the rest of this song, though. See this? So I want you to see the, the bookends of this. He's high and lifted up. He's dividing the spoil with a strong. That's the first verse, and that's the last verse. But then look at, look at this. Isaiah 52, 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He didn't even look like a human being. His, his, his appearance was so, so messed up. It was so distorted. It was so grotesque. So shall he sprinkle many nations. That word sprinkle is used in the Old Testament in this in the context of, of the blood cleansing. They would take the blood of the lamb and they would sprinkle it on the people signifying that they had been cleansed. The Day of Atonement, they would take this blood of the goat and they would sprinkle it on the altar signifying forgiveness. And they would sprinkle it on the people. It sounds really weird to us, right? But it signified cleansing. So he shall, he shall sprinkle many nations. That's, that's the context of that kind of statement. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. They're confused. They see the high and lifted up one being marred and beaten and his, his visage distorted, his appearance grotesque. They shut their mouths. They don't know what to say. What do we do with this? What do we do with this king who is unrecognizable? And of course, we know from Philip, and I think we would, because of all the hints in the text, we would know if we didn't have Acts 8, that this figure is Jesus, the king, the high and lifted up one, the one who is God incarnate, comes and he's born in the manger, right? He's born in this, this humble circumstance. He's at the end of his life when he's mistreated. And one of the good things about that movie that Mel Gibson did, you know, 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, was, was that if you saw it, you remembered the, the way that they portrayed Jesus during those last few hours of his life after he had been scourged is that his body was absolutely distorted almost beyond recognition, right? That's what he's talking about. You mean God, the creator, the one who said, let there be light, Yahweh? You mean God can allow himself to be beaten like that? Shut your mouth. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? How in the world, verse 1, how in the world can we even fathom this? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He's not like this giant oak tree or this blossoming fruit tree. He's like this little twig that grows up out of a stump, out of the, out of the, out of the dry ground. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him. He had no beauty that we should desire Him. Jesus, if you had gone back to Palestine 2,000 years ago and you, you had seen Jesus walking around, He would have looked like any other young Jewish man. He would have been average height. He, he would have been not, nothing special as far as His appearance. He wouldn't have been good looking. He, he wouldn't have drawn any attention. His presence wasn't anything special. It was like a root out of dry ground. It was just, he was just a man, you know, just like everybody else. He didn't have some sort of special human quality, some sort of king-like appearance. He wasn't like Saul when they picked King Saul. And he, you, remember, you remember King is head and shoulders above everyone else. Jesus would have been like everybody. And because of that, he was despised and rejected by men, by you, by me. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He got tired at Jacob's well. He, he cried in the Garden of Gethsemane. He got discouraged. He sweated like everybody else. He was a man. And as one from whom men hid, hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. And it's very important for us to read that with the first person pronouns here. And I think it would be better for us to read it not with a plural first person pronoun, we, but rather the singular first person pronoun, I, me. He does a little bit of that in the text, but he's wanting us to recognize our collective responsibility, but also our individual responsibility. He was despised, and I esteemed him not. And everyone in this room is in the crowd, right? You're in the crowd. I'm in the crowd. I esteemed him not because he was not the king I expected. He was not the king I wanted. He asked of me things I don't want to do. He leads me to places I don't want to go. He expects me to make sacrifices I don't want to make. The middle verse, verse 3 of a five-verse song is verses 4 through 6. That's the text that Corey read a few minutes ago. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet I esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our, my transgressions. He was crushed for our, my iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us, me, peace. And with his wounds, we are, I am, healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We, I, have turned everyone, there's that emphasis on the individual, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All I'm wanting you to see, at least up at this point, is that this is talking about Jesus. This is 700 years before Christ. But Isaiah, in the context of exile, in the context of, of, of rebellion among the nation of Judah, and they're, they're going into exile in Babylon and confused about what is happening and coming back from exile. What in the world is God doing? Is God going to fix this world? It's messed up. We have made a mess of things. God called Israel to be his people, and Israel has failed miserably. They've gone into exile. They've lived you know, lives of rebellion. What in the world is God going to do? And in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of that disappointment and uncertainty, Isaiah comes with these words. 
And he says, God is coming. And he's going to fix what we broke. He's going to make us whole again. But he's going to do it in a way the world does not expect. You and I, and I know I'm talking, I'm talking to the Bible, but I'm talking to folks who, who come to, for the most part, most of you come pretty much every week, you know. You know the story. But we gotta, sometimes we've got to try to hear this story as if we haven't been informed by 2,000 years of Christian history. This, this, is, this is shocking, what Isaiah tells us here. It's shocking because it doesn't fit the, the mold. It's so confusing. How can the high and holy and lifted up one, the one who's going to divide the spoil with a strong, how can he be treated like this? Like verse 3 here, the third verse of the song. How in the world can this happen? He, continuing on, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet, can he, can he grasp this? Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. He just took it. Why does a king take it? Why does God allow them to treat him like this? Why would God simply bow and take the bruises and the lashes and the saliva, the scorn, the mocking? Why does God take that? Why doesn't he call 10,000 angels or just a single angel? Why does he take it? You see, this doesn't make any sense. Who is Isaiah talking about, himself or somebody else, the eunuch asked? And that's a pretty good question because this doesn't make sense to our human minds outside of the context of the whole biblical story, right? He didn't open his mouth by oppression and judgment. Verse 80 was taken away. And as far as his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, he was cut off in the very prime of life. Jesus was in his, in his 30s when he died. He was cut off from the land of the living. He had no children. From a human perspective, in the prime of life, they cut him down, and he has no descendants. That's a hopeless cause. There's nothing good. There's nothing that can be redeemed about that, right? They buried him with the wicked. He had done no violence, no deceit in his mouth. It's hopeless, hopeless situation. Buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. He's buried with the wicked, with the human beings, who, many of whom had committed acts of rebellion. He's high and lifted up. Are you kidding me? Verse 13. Dividing the spoil with a strong, verse 12. How do, you get, how, do you get to the, how do you get to this point? Cut off in the prime of life with no kids, no descendants. This is a hopeless cause. And adding to that, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many who makes intercession for the transgressors. We get explanations here. We, we're starting to get a glimpse. We don't see the full image till we come to the New Testament. But, but here we see the high and lifted up one of verse 12 of chapter 52, verse 13. And the one who's dividing his spoil with a strong in verse 12 of chapter 53, the reason this is true is because God has this overarching purpose in all of this confusing mess. From a human perspective, it doesn't make any sense. And yet it says, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so this is where we start getting a little bit of an answer concerning what's going on, how can God be crushed? This Messiah, how can He be crushed? How can He be oppressed and afflicted? How can He be treated this way? And the hints are dropped throughout the text, but especially in the third verse, in the middle verse of the song, verses 4 through 6. He has borne our griefs, there, there are two things I really want you to take away from this. And this is the first of them. This slide, this, this emphasis here. And that is, it is there on the cross. I wish I could say this in a way that would, would make the kind of impression I think Isaiah's text ought to. You've heard this story so many times. Most of us have. And it we can almost read through this. I was reading Isaiah 53 yesterday, and, 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 and even though I've, I've been trying this week to understand it on a, on a deeper level, I still, I still have, to, I have to put energy into this to, 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 to let it speak to me because I know this story pretty well, you know, and you know this story pretty well. Try to let the Spirit of God speak through His Word and touch your heart this morning. He's borne our griefs, my griefs. He's carried our sorrows, my sorrows. But I esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted the King, the Messiah. He was pierced for our, my transgressions. He was crushed for our, my iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us, me, peace. With his wounds we are, I am healed. I mean, you've got to read this and you've got to make this personal. I want to help you a little bit in, in, a, in something you may not have noticed before. Skip down to verse 10. The translations don't help us here a lot unless you look at this more closely. Look down at verse 10. you got it there in front of you. I'm reading from the ESV and many of you are. And some of you have maybe something different. But, but verse 10 says something interesting here. It's hard to understand. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. How, knowing who Jesus was, God incarnate, God, how was it the will of Yahweh to crush Messiah? The only way that could be true is if there is some higher purpose for the crushing, right? If there's some higher purpose, something bigger than that. And of course, we know from the context of this song what that is. 
It's because our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities went with him to the cross. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now here's the part I wanted you to notice. There's a little bit of a translation issue here. The ESV has, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. It's not clear here in the Hebrew text what the subject is, though. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. They, they substitute, they put his soul there to try to make this make sense. But let me give you a couple of alternate readings. The Christian Standard Bible puts it like this. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. That's the way the Christian Standard Bible, that's the translation that came out I don't know, a couple of years ago, and it's, it's a good one. The new, the new Revised Standard puts it like this. This one's been around for a while, but it, it says, when you make his life an offering for sin. Do you see the difference in those translations? Verse 10 in the one I'm reading from says, when his soul makes an offering for, for guilt. But these are reading this a little bit differently, and I think in context it makes more sense. When you make him a guilt offering, when you make his life an offering for sin. And here's what I think he's getting at. The text is saying, you see, understand this, let's, let's make this personal, okay? When you, you, not, not the person next to you, not your wife, your spouse, not, not your kids, not your parents, not your neighbor, when you make his offering, make his, his life an offering, he is pleased. It's like this image of, of Jesus saying, here's my broken, crushed body. Here is my, my bloody, my shattered, my bruised and disfigured and marred body. Here's my body. And he comes to you and he says, here it is. You offer it as a sin offering instead of yourself. God sees that. When God sees that, He is pleased. Verse 11, out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see. Out of the anguish of His soul. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Out of the anguish of His soul, how could it be the will of the Lord to crush Him? Out of the anguish of his soul, he sees when you, when I, take his offering, his broken, bloody, beaten body, and present it as an offering to God in my place. He sees it, and he is satisfied. And that is where, that is where, and that is how God, who is holy, can invite you and me who are so unholy to be in His presence. Because God, in His infinite wisdom and His infinite love, He has offered Himself as the one to be punished and to take in His body, in His body, the stripes and the punishment, and the beating, and the death that our sins deserved. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And so we come to Him. We come to Him, and our lives are a mess. And we've tried it all. We, I mean, you, you, think about, you think about the things that you and I have done, and our lust, and our gossip, and our addictions, and, and our brokenness, and our impurities and our sexual sin and our greed and our covetousness and our so many ways in which we've taken God's plan for us and we've distorted and marred it and messed it all up. That's all we've got to offer. They do a good deed here and there, you know, we, we try to do some good stuff and make, can, Lord, can, can, I, can I offer you that? There's no good that we can do to undo the bad we've done, right? We're broken and messed up. But instead of offering our good deeds, instead of offering our messed up deeds, we come to him and we take the broken body of Jesus, the marred, disfigured body of Jesus. And that is our offering. And God sees it and is satisfied. And he declares you and me holy. That's the that's the only way we can come into the presence of God. It's the only way we can come into His presence. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's why Philip opened right there with the eunuch. And he told him the good news about Jesus. This is good news, right? This is an ugly, ugly, ugly story from one perspective. But God sees it and He makes it good. He makes it good. The gospel of Christ. You know, you may, you may think, and I know most people in this room are Christians. You've been baptized into Jesus. His, sins, his blood has washed your sins away. But this, this story changes us all. I mean, this, this changes everything about us. I don't have time to do this justice, but let me throw something out here for you to think about. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is a beautiful text. It's, it contains a song that the early church sang. And it says, have this attitude, verse 5 of Philippians 2 says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, it starts out with Jesus being on the throne. He's, he's with God. That's where it starts. And in verse 11, the, the last part of it, he is exalted again. So verse 5, the first part, he's exalted. Verse 11, he's exalted. But in the middle, in Philippians 2, he's become a servant. And he's taking on himself the punishment of the world. It's just like Isaiah 53. It starts and ends with the exaltation of Jesus. But in the middle, there's a valley. And in that text, in Philippians 2, what Paul says to us is, he's talking to us Christians here, by the way. He says, you live this life in yourself. You live this kind of life. And if you look at Isaiah 53, what happens is Jesus is the one who offers himself to people who don't, who don't appreciate it. He serves people who don't deserve it. He gives himself for people who are gambling for his outer garment while he's dying. He offers himself to people who are thankless and He has called us to live that kind of life. And that means that as Christians, saved by His grace, we go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We go 
in our lives every day of the week, and we try our best to live this, the life of Isaiah 53. We don't have perfect lives to offer, right? So we can't do what he did in that ultimate sense, but what we can do is we can find people to serve, people who won't appreciate it. In fact, some of those people are going to look at us with laughter and scorn, and, and they may even mistreat us. But he's called us to live this life, to follow him. And so we live this scorned life of Isaiah 53 in our own lives. It's, so that's the second sense in which I wanted you to read this. One is we are blessed because Isaiah 53 tells us that he was crushed for us. But the second thing, this is a little bit more difficult to hear. The second way to read this is he expects us to be willing to be crushed for the people around us. We live the life of the servant in our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday lives. That's the story of the servant of Isaiah 53. If, if you're not a Christian this morning, this is the gospel, you know? I mean, this is, this is why we're here. And I hope that if you're not, a, you're not a Christian, you'll recognize your brokenness. I hope that God's Spirit will convict you of your brokenness. You know that feeling in you that something's not right? You know that you're not what you ought to be? We've all, we've all had that feeling, have that feeling. It may be, sometimes it's kind of hard to put your finger on it, but, but you just know that you, your life isn't what it ought to be. What that is, is that inward recognition. God is convicting your heart that you need something more than what you've experienced and God has created something more for you. What it is, is He wants you to give your life to Christ, to give your life to the one who created you, so that you can present the broken body, the beaten body, the bloody body of Jesus as an offering for yourself, and you will be declared righteous. You demonstrate that publicly in the waters of baptism as you die to self and are buried in water and raised up just as Jesus was raised from the tomb and you live a new kind of life, a different kind of life, a God-honoring kind of life. We invite you to obey the gospel this morning. If you are a Christian, we invite you to live the life of the servant in a greater and in a greater way. We're all falling short of living, of modeling for the world the principles that Jesus demonstrates for us here, but that's what he's called us to live. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to obey the gospel and become one today. If you are one who strayed away from Him, why don't you come home to Him today? There's salvation only in the one who is pierced for your transgressions. Let's stand and sing this song if you need to respond. We invite you.